0: Part Four of Part First of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lawrence. Trilby by George de Morrier Part First, Part Four. Taffy brought her a cup of coffee and conversed with her in polite, formal French very well and carefully pronounced, and the laird kept trying to do likewise. His French was of that honest English kind that breaks up the stiffness of even an English party, and his jolly manners were such as to put an end to all shyness and constraint, and make self-consciousness impossible. Others dropped in from neighboring studios, the usual cosmopolite crew. It was a perpetual come and go in this particular studio between four and six in the afternoon there were ladies too en chevaux in caps and bonnets some of whom knew trilby indeed endowed with familiarity and friendly affection while others mademoiselled her with distinct politeness and were mademoiselled and madamed back again absolument comme à l'ambassade d'autriche as trilby observed to the laird with a british wink that was by no means ambassadorial then Svengali came and made some of his grandest music which was all completely thrown away on trilby as fireworks on a blind beggar for all she held her tongue so piously fencing and boxing and trapezing seemed to be more in her line and indeed to a tone-deaf person taffy lunging his full spread with a foil in all the splendor of his long lithe youthful strength was a far gainlier sight than Svengali at the keyboard flashing his languid bold eyes with a sickly smile from one listener to another as if to say n'est-ce pas que je suis peau n'est-ce pas que je suis tout chenille? n'est-ce pas que je suis sublime Enfin," then entered durian the sculptor who had been presented with a beignoir at the port st martin to see la dame au camalia and he invited troby and another lady to dine with him au cabaret and share his box So Trilby didn't go to the Austrian embassy after all, as the Laird observed to little Billy, with such good imitation of her wink, that little Billy was bound to laugh. But little Billy was not inclined for fun. A dullness, a sense of disenchantment, had come over him, as he expressed it to himself with pathetic self-pity, a feeling of sadness and longing that is not akin to pain. And resembles sorrow only as the mist resembles the rain. And the sadness, if he had known, was that all beautiful young women with sweet kind faces and noble figures and goddess-like extremities should not be good and pure as they were beautiful. And the longing was a longing that Trilby could be turned into a young lady, say the vicar's daughter in a little Devonshire village, his sister's friend and co teacher at the Sunday school a simple, pure, and pious maiden of gentle birth. For he adored piety in women, although he was not pious by any means. His inarticulate, intuitive perceptions were not of form and color secrets only, but strove to pierce the veil of deeper mysteries in impetuous and dogmatic boyish scorn of all received interpretations. For he flattered himself that he possessed the philosophical and scientific mind and piqued himself on thinking clearly and was intolerant of human inconsistency that small reserved portion of his ever active brain which should have lay and follow while the rest of it was at work or play perpetually plagued itself about the mysteries of life and death and was for ever propounding unanswerable arguments against the christian belief through a kind of inverted sympathy with the believer fortunately for his friends little billy was both shy and discreet and very tender of other people's feelings so he kept all his immature juvenile agnosticism to himself to atone for such ungainly strong-mindedness in one so young and tender he was a slave of many little traditional observances which have no very solid foundation in either science or philosophy for instance he wouldn't walk under a ladder for worlds nor sit down thirteen to dinner, nor have his hair cut on a Friday, and was quite upset if he happened to see the new moon through glass. And he believed in lucky and unlucky numbers, and dearly loved the sights and scents and sounds of high mass in some dim old French cathedral, and found them secretly comforting. Let us hope that he sometimes laughed at himself, if only in his sleeve." and with all his keenness of insight into life, he had a well-brought-up, middle-class young Englishman's belief in the infallible efficacy of gentle birth. For gentle he considered his own, and Taffy's, and the Laird's, and that of most of the good people he had lived among in England. All people, in short, whose two parents and four grandparents had received a liberal education and belonged to the professional class, and with this belief he combined or thought he did a proper democratic scorn for bloated dukes and lords and even poor inoffensive baronets and all the landed gentry everybody who was born an inch higher up than himself it is a fairly good middle-class social creed if you can only stick to it through life in despite of life's experience it fosters independence and self-respect and not a few stodgy practical virtues as well. At all events, it keeps you out of bad company, which is to be found both above and below. In media, tutusimus ibis. And all this melancholy preoccupation, on little Billy's part, from the momentary gleam and dazzle of a pair of over-perfect feet in an over-aesthetic eye, too much enamored of mere form." Reversing the usual process, he had idealized from the base upward. Many of us, older and wiser than little Billy, have seen in lovely female shapes the outer garment of a lovely female soul. The instinct which guides us to do this is, perhaps, a right one, more often than not. But more often than not, also, lovely female shapes are terrible complicators of the difficulties and dangers of this earthly life, especially for their owner and more especially if she be a humble daughter of the people. Poor and ignorant, of a yielding nature, too quick to love and trust, this is all so true as to be trite, so trite as to be a common platitude. A modern teller of tales, most widely and most justly popular, tells us of Californian heroes and heroines who, like Lord Byron's corsair, were linked with one virtue and a thousand crimes. AND SO dexterously DOES HE WEAVE HIS STORY THAT THE YOUNG PERSON MAY READ IT AND LEARN NOTHING BUT GOOD. MY POOR HEROINE WAS THE CONVERSE OF THESE ENGAGING CRIMINALS. SHE HAD ALL THE VIRTUES BUT ONE. BUT THE virtue SHE LACKED, THE VERY ONE OF ALL THAT PLAYS THE TITLE ROLE AND GIVES ITS GENERIC NAME TO ALL THE REST OF THAT GOODLY COMPANY, WAS OF SUCH A KIND THAT I HAVE FOUND IT IMPOSSIBLE SO TO TELL HER HISTORY as to make it quite fit and proper reading for the ubiquitous young person so dear to us all. Most deeply to my regret, for I had fondly hoped it might one day be said of me that whatever my other literary shortcomings might be, I, at least, had never penned a line which a pure-minded young British mother might not read aloud to her little blue-eyed babe as it lies sucking its little bottle in its little bassinet. Fate had willed it otherwise. Would indeed that I could duly express poor Trilby's one shortcoming in some not-too-familiar medium, in Latin or Greek, let us say, lest the young person, in this ubiquitousness of hers, for which heaven is praised, should happen to pry into these pages when her mother is looking another way. Latin and Greek are languages the young person should not be taught to understand, seeing that they are highly improper languages, deservedly dead in which pagan bards, who should have known better, have sung the filthy loves of their gods and goddesses. But at least I am scholar enough to enter one little Latin plea on Trilby's behalf, the shortest, best, and most beautiful plea I can think of. It was once used in extenuation and condemnation of the frailties of another poor weak woman, presumably beautiful, and a far worse offender than Trilby but who, like Trilby, repented of her ways and was most justly forgiven. Quia multum amabit. Whether it be an aggravation of her misdeeds or an extenuating circumstance, no pressure of want, no temptations of greed or vanity, had ever been factors in urging Trilby on her downward career after her first false step in that direction. The result of ignorance, bad advice, from her mother of all people in the world, and base betrayal. She might have lived in guilty splendor had she chosen, but her wants were few. She had no vanity, and her tastes were of the simplest, and she earned enough to gratify them all, and to spare. So she followed love for love's sake only. Now and then, as she would have followed art if she had been a man, capriciously, desultorily, more in a frolicsome spirit of camaraderie than anything else, like an amateur, in short, a distinguished amateur who is too proud to sell his pictures, but willingly gives one away now and then to some highly valued and much-admiring friend. Sheer gaiety of heart and genial good fellowship, the difficulty of saying nay to earnest pleading. She was bonne camarade et bonne fille before everything, though her heart was not large enough to harbor more than one light love at a time even in that Latin quarter of genially capricious hearts, it had room for many warm friendships, and she was the warmest, most helpful, and most compassionate of friends, far more serious and faithful in friendship than in love. Indeed, she might almost be said to possess a virginal heart, so little did she know of love's heartaches and raptures and torments and clingings and jealousies. With her it was lightly come and lightly go, and never come back again, as one or two, or perhaps three, picturesque bohemians of the brush or chisel had found, at some cost to their vanity and self-esteem, perhaps even to a deeper feeling. Who knows? Troby's father, as she had said, had been a gentleman, the son of a famous Dublin physician and friend of George Fourth's. He had been a fellow of his college, and had entered holy orders. He also had all the virtues but one. He was a drunkard, and began to drink quite early in life he soon left the church and became a classical tutor and failed through this besetting sin of his and fell into disgrace then he went to paris and picked up a few english pupils there and lost them and earned a precarious livelihood from hand to mouth anyhow and sank from bad to worse and when his worst was about reached he married the famous tartaned and tam-o-shantered barmaid at the Montagnan Écossais, in the Rue de Paris, Poisson, a very fishy paradise indeed. She was a most beautiful highland lassie of low degree, and she managed to support him, or helped him to support himself, for ten or fifteen years. Choby was born to them, and was dragged up in some way, à la grâce de Dieu. Patrick O'Farrell soon taught his wife to drown all care and responsibility in his own simple way and opportunities for doing so were never lacking to her then he died and left the posthumous child born ten months after his death alas and whose birth costs its mother her life then Chloé became a blanchisseuse de fin, and in two or three years came to grief through her trust in a friend of her mother's then she became a model besides and was able to support her little brother whom she dearly loved at the time this story begins, this small waif and stray was empachant with the Père Martin, the rag-picker, and his wife, the dealer in bric-a-brac and inexpensive old masters. They were very good people and had grown fond of the child, who was beautiful to look at, and full of pretty tricks and pluck and cleverness, a popular favorite in the Rue du Puy d'Armour and its humble neighborhood. Trilby, for some freak, always chose to speak of him as her godson, and as the grandchild of Le Père and Le Mère Martin, so that these good people had almost grown to believe that he really belonged to them. And almost everyone else believed that he was a child of Trilby, in spite of her youth, and she was so fond of him that she didn't mind in the least. He might have had a worse home. La Mère Martin was pious, or pretended to be. Le Père Martin was the reverse, but they were equally good for their kind, and, though coarse and ignorant and unscrupulous in many ways, as was natural enough, they were gifted in a very full measure with the saving graces of love and charity, especially he. And if people are to be judged by their works, this worthy pair are no doubt both equally well compensated by now for the trials and struggles of their sordid earthly life. So much for Trilby's parentage. And as she sat and wept at Madame Doche's impersonation of la dame au Kimila, with her hand in durians, she vaguely remembered, as in a waking dream, now the noble presence of Taffy as he towered cool and erect, foil in hand, gallantly waiting for his adversary to breathe, now the beautiful, sensitive face of little Billy and his deferential courtesy, enduring the entr'actes her heart went out in friendship to the jolly, Scotch laird of Cockbin, who came out now and then with such terrible French oaths and abominable expletives, and in the presence of ladies, too, without the slightest notion of what they meant. For the laird had a quick ear and a craving to be colloquial and idiomatic before everything else, and made many awkward and embarrassing mistakes. It would be with him as though a polite Frenchman "'should say to a fair daughter of Albion, "'Dee, my eyes, mees, your tea is getting blank cold. "'Let me tell that good old blank of a Jewels "'to bring you another cup.' "'And so forth, till time and experience taught him better. "'It is perhaps well for him "'that his first experiments in conversational French "'were made in the unconventional circle "'of the Place Saint-Anatole des Arts. "'End of Part First, Part Four. "'Recording by David Lawrence.' in Brampton, Ontario, June 2010.